Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. What is that sound? Well, that is the sound of a glacier melting. In the case of the Greenland ice sheet, it's happening very, very fast. New research shows that 30 million tons of ice are melting every hour in Greenland. The surge of fresh water into our oceans can have an enormous impact on sea levels and on the planet. William Colgan is a Canadian working as a senior researcher with the Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland. William, hello. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thanks for being here. I, the number is, is beyond my capacity to understand this. So help me wrap my brain around this 30 million tons of ice melting every hour. What does that look like? What is, what are we talking about here? So yes, this study that came out is saying that Greenland loses about 30 million, uh, tons of ice every hour from its floating ice. So that would be the part of the glaciers touching the ocean. And normally when we look at the ice sheet, we focus on what's happening on the grounded ice on the land. But they're saying, you know, if we look at the these glaciers, they're all retreating and they're losing this much ice and it's 30 million tons an hour. What is that? It's about 30 million. I, I, I mean, okay. <laughs> Let me try to give you a, a cubic <laughs> it, it does scramble the brain, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> I mean, it, it's about 40% more than Canada's annual water consumption in terms of what's being lost every year. I mean, on an annual basis, it's 63 cubic kilometers or what we call 63 gigatons if you add up those 30 million tons an hour. And that's uh, that's about 40% more than Canada uses annually for all its water, agricultural, industrial, household use, everything. That's a lot of swimming pools. I, I don't even know what it would be in swimming pools. Yeah. You regularly visit the ice sheet in, in Greenland. Can you just describe what it looks like? For people who've never been there, maybe, you, f- you know, people think of Greenland f- on a map, maybe you fly over it uh, if you're heading to Europe or something like that, but describe what it looks like. Well, if you get down up close and personal with the ice sheet, it looks a little different from the air. Um, it's definitely one of those Arctic landscapes, like in Canada, where everything is big and you, you know, like uh, wide open spaces, not huge horizons, um, where the earth shows its bones, as Stan Rogers would say. Mm-hmm. I think if you go to Greenland these days, um, the place to see climate change is right at the edge of the ice sheet, where you can see how the ice sheet has retreated recently. Uh, you, you don't have to go back again and again to see the retreat. Uh, if you just show up today, you can see what we call a trim line, which is this recently exposed rock and dust where the ice has recently melted back and exposed it. And this trim line, depending where you go, it can be um, you know tens of meters wide to uh, tens of kilometers wide. And it's uh, if you understand the processes at play, it really makes you appreciate how much the Greenland ice sheet is deflating and retreating at the moment. You can actually see this in some ways in real time. Uh, you certainly can if you go back year over year. Yeah. Uh, sometimes when we go to Greenland, 
uh, and we're in our helicopters. We fly at the vertical level of the trim line, sort of the bathtub ring in a valley glacier, and that might have you 100 or even 200 meters off the ice surface, and you peer down at the ice and you think, wow, it wasn't so long ago that we would have been driving on the ice surface up here. When you see that, what goes through your mind? It's really tough to explain to people the magnitude of change. Um, I mean, when we talk about Canada's entire water use disappearing uh, in terms of the ice lost, it's, it's wild. I think what it makes me think is I'd like more people to see Greenland with their own eyes yeah. and understand the profound changes, like just see the landscape being cracked up and broken and changing instead of hearing a big number. I mean, the visuals are, are quite staggering if you get up there. The ice isn't disappearing. I mean, the, it turns into water. The water has to go somewhere. So when it ends up in the oceans, what does that mean? Oh boy, it's, it's pretty complicated actually. Um, so Greenland is losing so much ice. Um, in addition to the, the study that we're talking about today that just came out, this is, they're just talking about um, 40 million tons of the floating ice at the edge of the ice sheet. But all together, the ice sheet is losing about five times more than that, or about, you know, it's nine or 10,000 tons a second. And it's so much ice that the gravity is weakening over Greenland. And that has an impact on how the ocean is shaped. Sorry, the, gravi uh, the gravity is weakening over Greenland. Is, isn't that weird? Because, we the displace because the displacement is less? Uh, well, but the mass in Greenland is less. Yeah. And, and I mean, if you think of how the moon orbits Earth and it pulls a tide around with it, Greenland is a relatively massive object and it holds sort of a permanent tide of water close to it. And so as Greenland begins to get smaller, its gravity begins to get weaker, and that water that it holds tight begins to slosh away to faraway places in the world where the gravity is not weakening. Um, so the, the upshot is, is that when Greenland loses mass and dumps ice into the ocean, most of the sea level rise is felt in the southern hemisphere. And on the flip side, when Antarctica loses mass and weakens its gravity, that's when the sea level is felt in the northern hemisphere. The idea of it sloshing in is fascinating. Um, tell me more about the impacts that you're seeing um, in, in and around Canada, for example. So if we look at sea levels across Canada, there's a bit of a difference between the West Coast and the East Coast, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, also, what's affecting sea level changes are the, the ocean and air currents that shift. And then what we call the vertical land motion or... Uh, how much the land is perhaps dropping if you're pumping groundwater out and uh, the, the land is dropping, or if you're in some areas of northern Canada where it's or in Alaska where it's still rebounding from the last glaciation, and then these sort of local vertical land motions also affect how you feel sea level. So in Canada, um, the sea level rise in Vancouver is definitely not helped by the fact that there's some subsidence of the land as well. It's going in the wrong direction. Versus, you know, in, in northern Canada, we have so much uplift that sea levels might be actually falling in relative terms, where the, the land is rising out of the ocean, the ocean is sort of falling off the shoreline. So it really matters uh, where you are and what processes you're interested in to get an understanding of how, you know, how Greenland might affect Canada is different in Newfoundland uh, than in Vancouver. What does it mean for the species that are, that are in that water? Oh, that's also a tough one. Um, there's a lot of interest in how 
all the meltwater coming off Greenland is going to affect the ocean and fisheries in particular. Uh, there's definitely a handful of studies that suggest more meltwater means more nutrients and more upwelling the fjords, which will generally be good for productivity or primary productivity of the ocean and help fisheries. But then there's also some studies saying that actually, you know, at a regional scale, if you get too much of this fresh water, you can start to have freshwater caps on the ocean, which reduce the vertical overturning. And also the oceans are getting more acidic as more CO2 dissolves into them. And that's bad for productivity in fisheries. Um, so there's some evidence that increasing meltwater from Greenland might help fisheries, but there's also some evidence that it might harm fisheries. And it, it's not, it's hard to tell because the fisheries are also highly managed, you know, a human resource. So looking for the impact, impact of a natural process on the fisheries is pretty challenging. You said in some ways in trying to think about this, that it, the word that you use, what is, it, it's wild. Um, I think most of us have never been to Greenland. We'd love, I'd love to go. Uh, there are a lot of people who would love to go, but we've never been. Um, you've been there a bunch. And I just wonder, it goes back to you describing this place. What, what do you love about that? When you're there and you see, because it's land, it, land is culture as well. It's not just a physical thing. What do you love about that space? Well, in addition to the scenic beauty um, and, you know, disconnecting from the hustle and bustle of city life and getting out to the big open landscape, it definitely shifts your gears because the lifestyle becomes fairly simple and the mission becomes clear. You, you know, when you go there for work purposes, you're like, okay, I am here to get this job done. And I'm in a small town. I wake up, try to get the work done as much as I can in a day, go to sleep, wake up, do it again. And so it can be, um, I won't say Zen-like, but it can be a pretty refreshing alternative to answering emails uh, hour after hour in your office. Mm. What, what does this disappearance mean for the people who live in that small town who aren't jetting in and jetting out? Now that's tough. I mean, we have enough challenges communicating what's happening in Greenland to people who live outside of Greenland. Um, but even communicating what's happening to Greenland to people that live in Greenland is also a challenge. Um, partly because, you know, their interaction with the physical landscape is very different than ours. And also there's, you know, there's some studies coming out highlighting a very different range of public opinion in terms of climate change, climate change understanding and climate change pro and con sentiment across Greenland. Um, you know, you have some towns where in the, in the North, especially where it's very sea ice dependent lifestyle. And they are not at all psyched with the prospect of losing sea ice. I can't imagine, yeah. No, no, of course not. But then you have, in southern Greenland, you have other towns more focused to tourism and uh, shipping resources, fisheries. And there, you know, they might not be so negative on climate change because they can actually see some benefits to making life easier and possibly even improving their fisheries. Um, so when you go to Greenland to study climate research, you're entering a pretty heterogeneous system, I would say, in terms of how much people are interested in climate change in Greenland and how much uh, they're on the pro and the con side of it. In, in listening to you describe what's happening, you don't want to be too dramatic about it, but the scale of it sounds almost apocalyptic. Um, and I wonder in the face that we talk a lot about climate anxiety and, and how the, the, the reality of what's happening in this world right now can, can give people real 
existential concern. You pull the sheet back over your head because you don't want to deal with what's going on. In doing this research, is there anything that gives you some element or degree of hope or optimism? Or, or, or are you consumed by the anxiety that so many other people are? Um, I think I'm very aware of other people coming into the same anxiety that I'm already experiencing. I think those of us who have been studying climate change in a big way for years now, seeing the prognosis get worse, the effects get worse, and the political inaction continue, we've had some anxiety over climate change for quite some time. And uh, misery does love company. It's it's not so bad to see more people joining the ranks, being like, this is something we should be very concerned about. But yeah, uh, not to make light of climate grief, you know, you ask what gives hope. Yeah. Um, the Paris Agreement is great, but it's not my prime source of hope. I, I think everybody sees that by now, that the IPCC process has been a very useful top-down conversation, but it's not ratcheting down emissions the way we'd like it to. So where I see my hope is more like consumer activism with divestment strategies or even shareholder activisms to try to move the consumers away from high carbon companies and products, et cetera. And I think there's been some good examples of that grassroots uh, consumer activism, which is really complementing the top-down IPCC approach. When do you go back? I will be going back to Greenland in May uh, to work on a big crevasse field near Lulusat in central West Greenland, and then again in August to work up in northwest Greenland uh, with some weather stations on the ice sheet. And do you expect, you'll, you'll see change, right? When you go back, what you will be returning to will be different than mm -hmm. what you saw the last time you were there. Uh, the change is very profound in both the regions that I work in. Uh, in central West Greenland, I work at Jakobshavn Isbre, which is one of Greenland's largest glaciers, and I study a, a new crevasse field that's opened up in the last 20 years. And the crevasses are phenomenally large. They're 20 meters wide and five kilometers long and quite bottomless. And they weren't there and, uh, 20 years ago. So we think they're telling us that the ice sheet is a little more sensitive dynamically to climate change than we expected. So watching this crevasse field evolve year after year is pretty profound indeed. I was going to say that you're lucky. Um, in being able to be on this landscape and see that. But I, I don't know if that's the right word, given what you see and what you just described. Um, but I really do appreciate you communicating that to us and communicating the urgency of, of what's happening. William, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Matt. William Colgan is a Canadian working as a senior researcher with the Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland. He has a documentary called The Color of Ice. It shows a little bit of, of what he described when it comes to the changing landscape and the culture within that Greenland ice sheet. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.